My name is Ben Crane. Um, this is my wife, Anna Maria Crane. We have at home now two uh, biological, well, one biological kid, one adopted child, and also a foster. We got married late in life. We met in July and we got married in October, same year, mm -hmm. 2004. And um, I had four miscarriages. And we finally understood that we needed to, that we wanted to be parents. It wasn't about being pregnant, but it was about being parents. People, when you bring fosters into your home, you're afraid, what's it gonna, how's it gonna affect my family? Because there's typically, situation and events that are surround the child that they had nothing to do with. It's not them, typically, it's the parents that, that have issues that they need to work through and get to a better place so they can be better parents. And so it's not like you're introducing a problem. You're introducing a child. People say, oh, you are such a great people. No, because it's about him. It's not We're about us. We're an instrument. That's it. It has its challenges, and there are challenging fosters, but what you get out of it's a lot more than you put into it. I mean, absolutely. You know, they say that you don't hug them or anything. They, you need to wait until day. And they do sure. that. And he got home yesterday, and he calls me Ana, and he came Ana, and I call and I call him Chaparrito, which <laughs> means little little guy. Little guy. <laughs> And I said, Chaparrito! And he hugged me. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not moving. Okay, I'm just saying. Like, you know, like nothing. I was just acting cool. And I was like, hi, Chaparrito, how was your day? Blah, blah, blah. And today he did the same. Oh, no! And he hugged me. This is the thing okay. now. Okay, yeah. second day. But, you know, just, just trying to, I mean, I'm just, it's, it, He's on his own time and everything. Yeah. And at night I just just do this and like just chaparrito buenas noches good night. But um, he hugged me yesterday and today, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty cool. And that's why we wanted to share that story with you. Uh, one, just to highlight, because this is Foster Care Awareness Month, and there's so many amazing families in our church that participate um, in that uh, need, uh, opportunity, however you want to see it. And we just wanted to continue to highlight those stories. One, because it's just examples of families in our church living life on mission. But then two, maybe God is calling some of you to do that as well. So we celebrate all of you that not only have gone through foster care, maybe adoption, my family and I have as well, and so many families that have done that. And so thank you for living life on mission and meeting needs in our community. So if you got a Bible, open it up to John chapter four today, John chapter four before I pray, so you can just get that set up. We're just teaching through the gospel according to John. We've been in it now, I think this is week 15, and we're gonna look at a story in John chapter four. In fact, it's gonna take us a couple weeks to do it but just because it is a rather long story, so we're going to look at part of it today. But it really kind of marks a transition point in the gospel. It's going to transition from who John the Baptist is and his highlighting his ministry and now into Jesus and who Jesus is. And we're going to really start to see Jesus perform miracles and meet needs, which is, again, what we're kind of talking about there in Foster Care Awareness Month, just meeting those needs of the people around us. So let's pray before we jump in, and then we'll get into our text. All right, pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for today. Thank you for the gift that it is and the privilege that we have to 
gather together, whether that is in person or online. And so thank you, God, for just the opportunity as the people of God we have to do that. And not just Revolution Church, because we're just one small part of the kingdom of God, but churches gathering all over the world, literally, today. And so, God, thank you. And we pray that as you um, are with us, we know you're with us, that you would, but you would meet with us today. Today is also Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate, God, the Holy Spirit coming and empowering the people and, and the church being born and thousands of people being saved. And so, God, we pray for that kind of work today of the Holy Spirit within us as well. And God, I pray that you would help me to communicate this. Give me the energy and the, the strength and the understanding to communicate this correctly because, God, I want people to know this message. And God, I pray that you would help us all to hear it and to see it. And we thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 4 is, like I said, where we're going to be. And, and it marks a transition, if you will. I, I told you several weeks ago, if you were here, that this story or the gospel according to John is ultimately about Jesus and us believing Jesus, and John gave us the purpose of that. But then we've looked at the ministry of John the Baptist for several weeks, and if you've been here over the last several weeks, we talked about how John was decreasing, and John was so spiritually mature and emotionally healthy that he knew he needed to decrease. His, his life was not about himself. His life was about Jesus. And so he's decreasing, and now Jesus is increasing, and you're going to see at the beginning part of John chapter 4 that this shift has now happened. And so now it's going to highlight Jesus's ministry, and now we're really going to pick up on who Jesus is and how Jesus works. And so let's go John chapter 4. I'm going to read the first uh, three verses and kind of the verse 6 to kind of set up the, the context of the story, and then we'll get into it, all right? So verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so that's John the Baptist, John the witness, all right, so there's the transition point. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So again, just so you kind of know contextually, geographically what we're talking about, Judea's in the south, all right, that's where Jerusalem is, and Israel's been in the news a lot for the last several weeks, and so you may have even Googled on the map and kind of looked at it geographically, but Jerusalem is in the south, and that was the area called Judea. Galilee's at the north, where the Sea of Galilee is, and in between those two places was a region called Samaria. And so Samaria was in between the temple in the Jerusalem area to the south and Galilee, to the north. And Jesus is going to spend the majority of his time in the north, but he's going to go back and forth from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, this was a route that Jewish people would travel often, but they would go around this area called Samaria. I'll set that up in just a second. But one thing I want to highlight here in these first three verses that you see in how Jesus is living and ultimately how John lived, what I was just describing, John decreased and now Jesus is increasing. Jesus is increasing. It says he is baptizing more people than John, although Jesus himself wasn't the one baptizing his disciples were. But notice what Jesus does the moment his influence, his, uh, the word that I hate today, fame, is increasing. When Jesus is making disciples, people are hearing about it. The Pharisees are hearing about it. What does Jesus do? 
he leaves. He leaves the spotlight. He's like, it's getting too hot down here. Not temperature-wise, right? Like, I'm getting too much influence. I'm getting too many followers on Instagram. Everybody's wearing these influencer hats now. I gotta head out, right? I gotta, if you don't know what those are, it's really nice big hats, right? And so um, I, I gotta move out of this region. And this is what I wanna point out to you. Jesus, just like John, or John, just like Jesus, runs from people making a big deal of him. And again, this is just a side note. This is a freebie for those of you who are here, all right? This isn't even the main point of the message, but I just want to, as we preach through this, I just want to highlight these things because if we're trying to be like Jesus, then we will do what Jesus did. But the moment he starts getting more influence, more notoriety, more fame, he does the exact opposite that most of us do. He doesn't walk into the spotlight. He walks off of it. Because his mission was simple. His mission was to make disciples. And, and that couldn't happen unless Jesus fulfilled his ultimate mission of going to the cross, dying, and raising again. And when he comes back, he gives us a mission in Matthew chapter 28, and he says it, and we call it now the great co-mission, which is the point of we are working with him on this mission, is to make disciples. So I just want to point out here Jesus stays true to his mission of making disciples, and he doesn't make a big deal. He just makes disciples, doesn't make a big deal. And the reason why this is important is because that's the mission of our life as well. Our mission in life ultimately is not just to be a mom or a dad or whatever job you have or whatever influence you have with people. Your overarching mission is make disciples but not to make a big deal about the fact that you're making disciples. And we just live in this culture now that loves to highlight celebrities, that loves to put people up on pedestals, and yet Jesus, the moment people tried to do that with him, he walked right off. You know, and I think about this, obviously, in my profession of pastoring, because it's very easy for pastors to do this or people to do this with pastors, which... Something that's just kind of funny to me that I laugh about, and I've, my wife and I have talked about this, I've talked about this with our staff, but you know, pastors obviously pastor churches and then go speak at conferences and stuff, and whenever you go speak at conferences or speak at other churches, they always want to know what your bio is, like your biography, like you have to write up this thing about yourself, and the funny thing about it is you're normally writing it up about yourself, and so when I had to start doing this you know, years and years ago, I really wrestled with writing up a biography of myself, because what am I going to say? I mean, really, all I got is sinner saved by grace. Here it is. That's what I got. But if you read some of these pastors' biographies, or you go on to the church's website, and they got a whole page about their pastor with glowing Instagram photos, right? And this like seven paragraphs about how he is the greatest communicator ever. I read those and I laugh because I'm like, sucker, you wrote that. You wrote that about yourself. And so it always feels a little narcissistic to me because I'm like, if I am saying I am the greatest communicator since Billy Graham, then I got a problem. And so I almost feel like, and we might do this as an exercise, all right? Next time I have to write a biography, we might just do a post. We'll send it out to all y'all and you say what it is and we'll compile it and put it in there. Now, I know there's some people in our church like, no, 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 don't do that. But, but you see what I'm saying? How this system can kind of feed itself in real narcissistic ways? Like when you're just trying to stay faithful and making disciples, but then people can make big deals about that fact. And, and I just wanted to point out the fact that 
When that was happening with Jesus, he runs away from the crowds. He runs away from the spotlight and goes up to the north. He goes up into the wilderness. He goes up into the woods. I think that's why I like the woods so much. Because the woods isn't about my glory at all. It's about God's and his creation. And so it recenters you. So again, that's just a freebie for y'all today, all right? Don't make a big deal about yourself. Just make a big deal about your mission, which is making disciples. All right, let's move on. Verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. That verse just, just jumps out at me. So much so that the title of today's message is Passing Through Samaria. But look at this again, verse four. He had to. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. That's important. I think that's why John highlights it. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So again, let's go back to geography here for a second. Jerusalem's in the south. All right, and so you got the Sea of Galilee, you got the Jordan River flowing out of it down into the Dead Sea, and then you got Jerusalem, just if you're looking at it, kind of to the west of that on the southern part. So that's where everything was happening. That's where the Temple Mount is. That's where obviously every, all the Jewish people would come back to. Uh, and, and like I told you, today it's Pentecost Sunday, and so they would travel up to that because it was the day of offering. And so that's when the Holy Spirit is given and 3,000 people are saved. So that's where all the activity is. And Jesus goes to the north, but your typical Jewish person, again, if you've been around church, you probably heard this, would try to go around Samaria because they didn't like Samaritans. They, they considered them half-breeds. They, they were mixed. And so they, they had you know, taken the commands of God for you know, Jewish people to not marry people of other faiths. or uh, It wasn't ever about other ethnicity, ethnicities. It was always about other faiths, other religions, and they had. And so this whole area where they settled, most, most Jewish people would just travel around it because they didn't like them. But Jesus is a different type of Jewish person. He had to. He had to. And I'm going to point that out several times throughout the message. But it's interesting. Jesus is like, no, I'm going right through it. And when he goes right in the middle of it, there's this place called Jacob's Well. Now, if you were here last year when we did a series called Welcome to the Wrestle, it was the whole story of Jacob back in Genesis. And God, how God changed his name and how God changed his nature because that's what God is about. He's about changing our nature. He's about transforming us. And so the whole message series, you can go back and watch that if you weren't here, was about how God wrestles with us because God comes to Jacob and wrestles him, breaks his hip because God don't play fair. So he wrestles him. And we, we talked about how we have to learn how to welcome that. We have to learn how to welcome to the wrestle. And I would say it in my favorite WWE voice, all right, but I got to make sure I, I, I got another one in me. So you can go back and watch that just if you want entertainment, all right? But it was that place that God met Jacob and wrestled him. And here we are, centuries later, and Jesus is going through that place again, and he is at a well again, and he's about to wrestle with somebody else. Now, that's important 
Because geographically, this isn't just a, a setup to, so that you can know where it's happening. It's a setup so that you can know what is about to happen. So it's not just about it was a place, but it was about what does that place represent? And during that series, what we talked about how is all of us have wells that we're drinking from, that were established in our families, in our cultures, prior to us coming onto the scene. And, and so metaphorically speaking, wells became like the mentalities that we have, the, the personalities that we have, the lifestyles that we have, the ways that we live. We all drink from something. But the problem is those wells are poisoned by sin, poisoned by sin, passed down to us through our families, through our cultures. And yet Jesus is about to meet a woman at a well to confront that. And that's what I want us to see. But before we get into the story, let me give you this point that's kind of setting up what I just said. We all have some area where we go to drink from wells that were dug before. Now, if you didn't catch my slickness there, we all have some area. We all have, let me say it to you like this, Samaria. Ah, see what I did? Y'all were like, oh, that's, that's, that's clever. That's, I like that. I like this guy. I like him. We all have a Samaria. Let me say it to you like this. We all have a Samaria that we go to that we don't want anybody else to go to. We all have an area in our life, a part of our life that we would just love it if everybody, including Jesus, just walked around it. Because we don't want them to see it. We don't want them to know it. I mean, the scariest thought in human history is if they somehow in the future figure out a way to put our thoughts up on a screen. Do you want those things tickering down on the bottom? No, I don't, I don't want a TV in my house and you walk in and, and then on the bottom of whatever I'm watching, I can see your thoughts. I'd be like, get out of my house right now. You are a horrible person. We all have thoughts. We all have patterns. We all have ways, let me say it, we all have wells that we drink from, ways of thinking, ways of living that we don't want anybody to know about, and we for sure don't want Jesus messing with, but here's the message today. Jesus has to. He has to. He had to. It's not just that it was the shorter route, you know, the the old phrase, the, the shortest point between, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So it made sense, Jerusalem, Judea, I mean, Judea here, Galilee here, straight line. It, it would be asinine to go around it like that. But, but Jesus isn't just going because he's like, that's a long walk, I need to pace myself. He's doing it because if he misses out on this opportunity that you're about to see, then this woman will never have a chance to drink from new wells. So that's the setup, all right? And the setup by default is this. Jesus will do the same with you and I. He will come to some areas in your life that you are drinking from, that you are getting source from, and he'll be like, we gotta change this. All right, so that's the setup. Let's go. Verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So again, what you got to understand here is what's going on is the cultural implications of what I was just talking about. You would almost never see a Jewish man going to a, a well to get water. That was the woman's job. Not because it was necessarily demeaning to women, because, and this is the same true as Kenya today, in the wells that we have dug, it's amazing that literally the women and children will walk miles with these big jugs on their head that full of water. And, and most of the time, those used to be for oil and for cooking. And so they would just clean them out and use them for water, walk miles. And so the fact that a man was there at a well was weird in and of itself. The fact that this man was talking to a woman was weird in and of itself. And the fact that a Jewish man was talking to a Samaritan woman was way weird. But here's what I want you to see and hear. Jesus will bust through any cultural boundary he needs to to get to you. He will bust through what other people said you shouldn't do. He'll cross cultural lines. Let me say it to you like this, false boundaries that we set up. He'll engage with any person, maybe even people that you think, oh no, those are off-limit people. You know, all of us have a category of those people, don't we? Sadly, in the past, it used to be across racial lines. One of the new dividing lines today, and it's not really new, it's just become way more prominent, is political lines. You can read it like this, and don't read into what I'm about to say, but here's Jesus, a Republican, walking up, and there's a Democrat at the well. You're like, I knew it, he's a Republican. No, he's not. Jesus is willing, listen, to walk into anyone's hidden areas. That's what he does. And this woman's kind of stunned by it. Now look at the next section. For Jews, this is what I was just telling you, have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here's Jesus turning the conversation into really deep stuff. Which is interesting because the woman in just a minute is going to say, this is deep water. She didn't realize how deep it was. Jesus lovingly engages her, and I'm going to highlight this in just a second. It's amazing to me that Jesus is willing to cross all these cultural boundaries and sit down next to the very wells that people drink from that are killing them. And he immediately brings the conversation up to spiritual things. And, and there's just, I, I just want to kind of highlight this here because it's kind of fascinating to me when you kind of break these words down. But Jesus says, gift of God, you would have asked, I'd give it to you. So gift of God, you ask, I give it to you. That right there is how salvation works. So let me, let me say it to you like this. The gift of God is grace. So grace is this. Grace is God coming to you. 
not you coming to God. This is where a lot of times we get confused. Like, well, if you would just make your way to God, if you would just clean it up, if you would just quit drinking from different wells, the problem with that is we can't because we're physically, uh, it's physically impossible for us to do. But the good news of the gospel is God doesn't wait for us to get to him. He comes to us. That's grace. And so in the order of salvation, grace precedes faith. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. This is why my favorite verses in the Bible, that say my favorite two words in the Bible, but God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Rich in mercy. So the order of salvation is grace. Grace comes. We talked about this in John 3, regeneration. The Holy Spirit breathed grace. You can see. What's the next step? Faith. You ask. You ask. You respond in faith. So grace, God opens your eyes. Faith, you ask. God, I didn't know I was drinking from things that were killing me. So now, would you give me water? And then the third step, Jesus is like, I'll give it. So that's the order of salvation. Grace, faith, saved. And that's what Jesus says to her. Now look at verse 11. The woman said to her, said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Problem number one. Problem number two, the well is deep. This is what I was saying. And, and, and I can just kind of imagine because here's Jesus. He's like, oh, it's deeper than you think. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. It's amazing that the moment that Jesus points out how she can be saved, she gives him a list, a laundry list back of why he can't. Isn't that how it works with God? God's like, do this. Here's all the reasons why I can't, God. You, you ain't got nothing to draw it out with. It's deep. Are you, are you smarter than our father Jacob? Are you greater than him? Let me say it to you. Like, are you greater than all my ancestors' mindset and cultural ways? But it's interesting to me how so many times, and this is what I'm saying, if you can't see yourself in this, in this story as the woman at the well, then you need to do some more digging. You need to go a little deeper. Because let me just point it out to you. There's always a hero in every story, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. And this is what I love how Jesus engages with this woman. He's like, oh, it's deeper than you know. And her first response is such a human response where she's like, you don't have anything. It's deep. And culturally, how are you going to, how have you figured out something that years and years and years of my ancestors haven't? And I would just like to lovingly submit to you. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And so it's really kind of a pointless exercise to do pros and cons with Jesus or strengths and weaknesses. So strength, Jesus. Weakness, he ain't got nothing. It's deep, cultural sense. All these things, Jesus will win every time. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have him, you have what you need. Which again, that's what faith and grace is about. This is why 
Faith and grace is not Jesus plus something. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not faith plus works. No, it's just Jesus, and that's it. But in her very human, limited capacity, she responds back in the way that we all do and telling God why he can't do what he just said he could. And then look at Jesus' response. I love this, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. I love this phrase, welling up to eternal life. Jesus just kind of, he doesn't blow her off. He doesn't brush her off, but he just pushes past her objections to get her again to a deeper place than what she can think. He says, listen. I'm not talking about digging things up out of this well. I'm not talking about that because I could do that for you. I mean, Jesus could magically make it happen, right? Like, come here, bucket. Give me some water. Yes, sir. Because when Jesus commands something, it's not like they have a choice. This is why I say often, it's not some epic battle between Jesus and the devil because Jesus commanded demons. And when he said it, they had to go. Jesus is not in some epic battle with all of them. He is in control of everything. Whatever he says, it has to obey. But Jesus, again, is trying to push us past what we can see and get us to a deeper level and saying this, I'm not talking about this water that you're drinking. I'm talking about another water that you're drinking. And that water that you're drinking has more to do with just trying to meet your physical needs. It's more to do with trying to meet your spiritual needs. What wells are you drinking from that you're trying to fill up your soul? That's what I'm talking about. And he says the water that you drink to try to fill up your soul, and there's some clues here contextually because he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about eternal joy. He's talking about eternal happiness, eternal relationship with God the Father and his creation and his people. He's saying, I have so much for you. I'm just trying to get you to push past and seeing that your earthly needs are simply just a natural part of how I made you, but there is eternal needs underneath you that you're trying to fill with earthly things. See, Jesus is pushing through all of that. And he's saying, listen, that water and by default, any other water that you try to use, spiritually speaking, to fill you up will always make you thirsty again. And there's a, you know, kind of a cultural phrase now, this word thirsty, and I'm not going to dig into it too much because uh, it can get weird in a hurry. But the idea of being thirsty culturally now is you're emotionally needy. You're emotionally needy. And, and almost always culturally, it means you're trying to fill up, watch this, through physical actions to meet your emotional needs. And Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, and he's about to go there with her too. But he's trying to get her to see, I got water that's better. Now, in thinking about this, you know, I, I always have water up here. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little swig of it. And I was thinking about that water. You know, when you're preaching or you're hot, you're like, man, that's some, that's some good water. And I thought instantly, about the great theologian, Bobby Boucher. <laughs> the movie Waterboy. 
You ever seen that? And he's like, mm, that's, that's clean. That's cold. That's some high-quality H2O. And if you're new, you never know what reference you're going to get. In that movie, and then, if you don't know, it's Adam Sandler, and he's the water boy of a football team who turns into be an amazing football player. But he's obsessed with water. And when he starts dating this girl, he brings her over to his house, and he pulls out this special water from this little pouch. He's like, this is water from a glacier in Alaska. Blessed by an Eskimo medicine man. She's like, oh, it's so cold. It's always cold. That's what makes it special. And I'm saying that reference to you because now you're never going to get Jesus as the water boy out of your head. Because that's what he's saying to this woman. And what does the devil do? We'll get into this in just a second. If you know the story, everybody always starts saying Gatorade. Gatorade. So here's the, the devil's like, Gatorade. Isn't that what the devil did with Adam and Eve? Gatorade. But, but so many of us miss this. Don't miss this. So, so many of us miss the Christian life by obsessing over what the devil is saying to us and saying, no, no, no. Instead of saying, I'm not even going to look at that. I'm going to say yes, yes, yes to what God's saying to me. This is where teen, I used to tell teenagers this all the time, and any parent understands this. So many times people think that God is out to limit their fun. That's why there's these Ten Commandments, these rules. I can't believe God would give us all that. You want to know why? Because God's saying water is better. I have more for you. I have something over here that will satisfy you in a way that you could never be satisfied by something that, watch this, I even created. But would you rather have what I created or the creator? So, so hear me. The invitation of God is not into less joy, but into more. And so if you're a Christian and you think you have less joy than you did before you were a Christian, you're doing it wrong. And this is how we try to argue with people that are Christians. They're like, sin is not fun, which I would just like to submit to you. If sin wasn't fun, you're also doing that wrong. Right? Because that's the problem with sin. It is fun. But it's only fun for a night. It's only fun for a moment. Normally, the decisions that you make 10 seconds before, you regret 10 seconds after. But notice what Jesus says. This water is so good. It's so high quality that it will well up within you for eternity. Don't miss this. He's at a well that she's trying to drink from, and he's trying to get her to see that she's actually drinking from other wells, which he's going to point out in a second. He's saying those wells are bankrupt because they can't give you joy eternally, but the one that I'll give you will well up. Don't miss that word. What is he saying? I'm going to give you a new well to drink from that's going to spring up within you to eternal life and give you joy forevermore. And so Christianity, this is why I don't think a lot of people come to Christ is because Christians are like, hmm. Instead of being at church and be like, I can't believe 
He came to me. I can't believe he saved me. I can't believe he gives me joy forevermore at his side. And so it's an invitation into greater joy, but most of us as Christians, we're not like Bobby Boucher enough to where we see the, how special it is. And you're like, you got all that from a well? Yeah. Look at what, this is why. Look at what Jesus says, verse 15. Notice she's intrigued. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Of course, that's what she would say. So that I will not be thirsty. We have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. This is right when you're at the point of the story. You're like, hold up. We're talking Samaritans, Jewish people, well, water. What the heck does her husband have to do with this? And, and ladies, don't read into this culturally. Jesus is not saying go get your man because he is the one who represents you. No, Jesus is willing to cross that boundary and deal with you individually because you will stand before God individually. Your husband won't be there. Your spouse won't be there. Your wife won't be there. Your granny won't be there. I won't be there. So he's not saying that. What is he saying? Look, the context will tell you. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. And this is where you're like, okay, I think Jesus is going somewhere with this. Where's he going? Before she can accept the source of living water, she has to first identify the source of dead water or dirty water. Now, again, ladies, please don't say like, that's right. Husbands ain't nothing more than dirty water. <laughs> Let's not get into that, all right? Because having a husband or having a wife is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. But, and this is, again, I want to be sensitive here because I know we live in a time where, uh, I mean, it's always been this kind of way, but where relationships don't work, and so then it leads into divorce or death. Or, and so there's a lot of people in our context that might have been married multiple times. So, so don't hear me ragging on that or like highlighting that because churches have done this almost like putting a scarlet letter on someone's like, if you had this sin, you're the worst. So don't hear me saying that. But Jesus isn't highlighting this simply because she's had five husbands and her one that she's with now is not. He's highlighting this because he's saying, listen, you keep getting a new spouse thinking that that spouse can actually now become your new source. It's not wrong to have a spouse. It's just wrong to have a spouse as your source. And I would just like to lovingly submit to you if You've been married five times and you're on the sixth one now. What's the sixth one going to do that the fifth one didn't? What's the, what, that the fourth one didn't? That the, is the seventh one going to do it? The eighth one? I was talking to somebody the other day and he was telling me that, that one of their relatives had been married 14 times. Yeah, I'm like, bro, that's a problem. Because if it happens once, it may be a fluke. If it happens twice, it may be a coincidence. If it happens three times, it's a pattern. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. He's saying to her, listen, you keep 
looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, looking for love. That's why I preach. I don't sing. And the reason I'm saying this is because this starts early. It's not just a teenage puppy love problem. It is a 40-year-old problem. 50 years. I've heard of people that have been married for 40 years in their 60s having affairs and getting divorced. And you're like, what happened? What happened was, what had happened was, they elevated their spouse to their source and said, make me happy. Instead of living the life of a servant with their spouse and say, no, through Christ, I'm here to serve you. See, that's what was going on with this woman. She was looking for her source of eternal joy and happiness and fulfillment and to feel right and good in the arms of a man, which I joke about this often. Ladies, look at us. I mean, the dude that who's driving down the road, picking his nose, is he going to do that for you? <laughs> Who fights his mama and you to take a shower? No. Now, in case you were wondering, I am a man and I am a husband and I love that. It's one of the greatest joys in my life. But if I put my source of joy on my wife, it will crush her. And if she puts it on me, it will crush me. And so what happens is we keep going back to those wells that aren't doing it for us. And, and if you know anything about addictions, you need more of it to get the same thrill. This is why drugs are so addicting, because at first this amount would do it, then it was this amount, and then it was this amount, then it was this amount, and then it was this amount, and then before you know it, your organs are shutting down. Because you were not made for that. So look at how she responds. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You think? He just told you. And, and again, this is what I was saying. He had to go there. So let me say it to you like this. Jesus is the kind of God that has to go there in your life. You know why a lot of people leave church? It's because they come to church and Jesus went there and they're like, I ain't going back there. I ain't going back to the place where they go there. Because I would just like to have my wife and my girlfriend on the side. I would like to, to, to have all this. I would like to have Samaria on the side. Oh, that'll preach, won't it? But I don't like people who go there. Well, Jesus goes there. And she responds. Let's get back to it. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Notice that. Believe me. Believe me, have faith and trust in me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Everybody say from. 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 Let's try that again. I'm going to read it. You say it with me. For salvation is what? From. from the Jews. That is, if you've been around here, you know I like prepositions. That is a preposition of source. Notice I've been using that word on purpose. Preposition of source is something that shows where something else comes from, where something gets its source from. 
And notice how Jesus responds to her. And again, this is just a little side note here. But Jesus was willing to walk in and sit down with someone who was drinking from wells that was killing her that culturally everybody else said, why are you doing that? And we'll get into this next week. The rest of the story, his disciples show up and they were amazed that he was talking to a Samaritan woman at her well. So again, I would just like to lovingly submit to you as Christians, our job is not to yell from the rooftops how everybody is drinking from things that are killing them, but to quietly come up next to people sitting at their wells and engaging with them. You know, last week we talked about it. If you don't have faith, then the wrath of God remains and hear me, church, because this I've been a Christian since I was 13, been a pastor since I was 19, and so it's been, I've been in this thing for decades, and it amazes me how Christians who follow Jesus, who save them, the longer they become Christians, the more judgmental and hatred they feel are, are filled. When the ultimate measure of maturity is not what you know or how many Bible studies you've been to, but it's how do you love. And so here's what I want us to see. If we're really trying to get people out of hell and into the loving arms of Jesus, then let's not treat them like hell. Let's be willing to sit down with them at their places of the wells that they're drinking from and simply ask them, how's that working for you? Is this everything that you thought it would be? And that's what Jesus does. And this is what I was saying earlier, how Jesus lovingly engages this woman and leads her to a place of a new source. And that source is from the Jews. But what he was saying was not culturally or nationally, but of the Jewish Messiah. Who was him? And he's going to say it too. We'll see it next week. It's I that am speaking to you. I'm the source that I'm talking about. And what's crazy, you'll see this next week. She then leaves and go tells all her friends, come meet the person who told me everything I ever did. Let me just say, if we're not loving sinners like that, we're doing it wrong. Because one of Jesus's titles, not that he gave himself, but other people gave him was friend of what? Anybody know? Sinners. So if we as Christian people who are sinners can't be friends of sinners like Jesus did, then we're doing it wrong. So Christians, please quit being keyboard warriors for Christ. That world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yes. Why are you confused about that? But let me ask you a question. If it's going there and it's burning now because it's going to burn forever, who are you running to with water? And engaging with them in loving ways and saying, man, if you only knew what God had for you, you quit drinking from that. And that's exactly what Jesus does. But let me wrap it up for this week with this. All sin is, is this. Right need, wrong source. In fact, it's the last point if you want to write it down. It's just right need, wrong source. See, the needs that you and I have are not sinful. Or not. My need to be loved. My need to have emotionally healthy, joyful relationships. It's not bad. Your need to eat, your need to drink, your need for love, 
your need for human touch, for human contact, for intimacy. None of that is wrong. It's just wrong to meet those needs through the wrong sources. And hear me, church, because this is the kind of culture we want to constantly create here. If you're living with people that constantly keep going back to the wrong sources, the way out of that source is not telling them how bad they are. You're horrible. I can't believe you did this again. The way out is through loving emotional relationships. We know this because someone can go to rehab for six weeks, three months, and if when they come out, they don't have loving emotional relationships, healthy attachments, it's only a matter of time for they're right back in because this was never meant to be a solo thing. So we have to learn how to help people in this growth process by lovingly coming back to them and saying, man, this well won't do it again. Why are you going back there? That's what I've been saying. Rebuke is best served as reminders where you lovingly come to someone and say, listen, I think you forgot who you are. We don't do this. And notice how Jesus said, we worship what we know. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't just inviting her into a relationship with him. He was inviting her into a relationship with them, a new family. And that is how we get people out of old wells into new ones is we love them into the family of God. And we'll get into this in the next few weeks, but for now, let's end it there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for the gift of God. Because there's not a person here, myself included, that found you. You came to our wells and found us and offered us water. So thank you for that. But God, I pray right now for anybody here or watching or listening who has not had you deal with these areas in their lives that they are trying to drink from bankrupt wells. Pray, God, that you would show them that the way out of that is not shaming them, but offering them living water, high-quality water, which you give to us through the Holy Spirit, which we said today is that. Today we celebrate as the global church, the giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, who he is the water, he is the well, he is the connection to you. So God, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, hasn't been saved, and therefore baptized in the Spirit, trusting you and being filled with you. I pray right now you do that. Let me look around or talking here as we close, but if you want to trust Jesus, be saved. Ask him to fill you. That's the faith part. Then I'm going to help you do that. So I'm going to give you a chance to pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me 
that you sit your son in my place for my sin. And he met me at my place of greatest need. So I ask you now to fill me with the Holy Spirit. Save me. Please forgive me. Give me your righteousness. Take my sin. Thank you for loving me. Get nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed to trust Jesus, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that if you're in one of our locations? If you're watching online, you can just hit the little button. Yes, I just raise a hand, trust Jesus. Thank you. We got men and women in person, online, and I'll follow up with you, give you a gift. But then those of us who've trusted Jesus, but if you're anything like me, you keep going back to old wells. Wells that maybe your family dug long before you. See, we can't choose our temptations. So often those are established before us, but we can choose our response to them. But today I want you to hear me lovingly say as best I can, I don't think the Lord is trying to shame you into going to those wells. He's trying to outsource them. And so the way out of a broken one is taking part in a better one. And so today, ask the Lord to fill you again. Ask the Lord to surround you with loving people to help you. Ask the Lord to, Father, help me have more joy in you. Because if I'm full in you, then I'm not going to go to things that don't honor you. So Father, would you fill us up with your Holy Spirit, this well within us, would it spring up and give us joy in your house with your people and fill us to the point to where we are so satisfied from you, we would never go back to those wells. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.